Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. We have a podcast for you this week about motivation. If you've been struggling coming out of the transition season, coming out of the holidays to get going again, this is the podcast for you. Before we get rolling, I did want to remind everybody how best to get in touch with us. If you want to reach out to both me and Patrick, you can send the podcast an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can send Patrick an email at patrick at itlcoaching.com, or you can send me an email at george at itlcoaching.com. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, and on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast. Let's get on with the show. and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITO Coaching and Performance. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Hollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. This is our first episode of March of 2019 and we are one year out from the Olympic marathon trials being here in Atlanta. Exactly one year. One year from this weekend, as a matter of fact. One year effectively from today, right? It's February 29th of 2020 uh, when they're going to be here in Atlanta. Um, But I bring it up because yesterday was the Road to Gold preview race uh, that the Atlanta Track Club put on. Um, and uh, both you and I ran it. We ran it very differently from one another. I did it more as a workout. You did it as a, as a straight-up race, um, and uh, you ran great, man. Congrats. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to talk about you know motivation a bit a bit more later here in the uh, podcast mm-hmm. episode, and mm-hmm. this was a, a race that I needed. Um, it's been kind of a long winter of training, and this was kind of the first day where the, the sun was shining and the, the legs were moving fast and things were clicking, and so it felt good. Right on, right on, very good. Um, there was about 100 pros there, about mm-hmm. 40 um, or 100 Olympic hopefuls is actually what they called them because yes. a few of them are, are not actually pro runners. They're people who have either qualified or almost qualified and, and think they might qualify for the Olympic trials next year, and so they put them in, uh, in one starting wave. There's about 40 men, there's 39 men, I want to say, and about 60 women. Um, and, uh, and then they started the men at about seven, probably a seven Oh three, right. Mm-hmm. They actually delayed the start cause they were filming a movie downtown, <laughs> um, on the same roads where we were trying to do our preview race. No, I don't know if you heard cause I don't think you were with us, but a lot of us were warming up mm-hmm. and they were like, are right, y'all need to stop. We're about to have like a motorcycle stunt scene. We're like, right. what do you mean? And then like, right as we said that, like these motorcycles go like flying right in front of us. Right, and right wheelies and backflips it was pretty wild that's pretty funny i mean i so i i ran i ran for almost an hour beforehand and so so i checked in early and then put my number on and put a shirt over my number because i didn't want to be that dude running through the streets with his number on um and uh and and ran way off into midtown and stuff like that you know Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah right there at the very end people are starting to line up and stuff and i was like all right let me top off my my warm-up here and and head to my car and change my shoes and uh and sure enough they stopped me and then, and, and so I just kind of stopped. And then the guy goes, sir, you need to kind of go away. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And, and I just turned around and just ran off. But, but yeah, anyway, Atlanta, you know, the, the new Hollywood. Um, and so they're, they're filming a movie, which I imagine the scene is probably going to be set at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're filming it, you know, just before sunrise. But they did say, I heard them announce, they said, please don't film this with your, uh, with your camera phones or anything like that. Cause they didn't want any spoilers for the movie leaking out. So that's it. Um, that's an interesting problem. I didn't even think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so, so they start the men like 7.03. They started the women about uh, pro women, Olympic hopeful women about uh, about 10 minutes after that. Uh, and then they started us at about, about 7.20, right? Yep. Um, and uh, it was cool because you know, the course loops over itself a little bit. Um, and, and so we got to see the pro women coming back in the other direction. Um, and uh, Amy Craig, who uh, won the Olympic trials in 2016, ran 2.21 in Tokyo last year, Um was just crushing everybody <laughs> yeah it was one of those things so i remember we were running out you know mm-hmm. about a mile or so into the race they were mm-hmm. coming back about two miles into the race mm-hmm. and it looked like i mean it was it really was one of those scenes where you're like where's everybody else right you know my my yeah, early i mean it was early and like mm-hmm. she just ran by and was gone mm-hmm. and then you saw the rest of the pack and right. you're like holy cow right. did somebody take a wrong turn or something right right yeah, it was it was an eight, very impressive performance. It was just over eight miles, um, and so it was basically the last eight miles of the race. Um, mm-hmm. um, but the way and we've talked about this already, the way they set it up is that the 
men and women in the Olympic marathon trials are going to run um, four six-mile loops, and then the last loop they're adding on a 2.2-mile extra um, to make 26.2 miles uh, total. Uh, and so we did basically the four-mile loop with the 2.2-mile extra there at the end. Mm-hmm. And I had to change a little bit, so it was actually just a little bit over eight miles rather than 8.2, but that's okay. Um, what did you think of the course? I loved it because it, it really wasn't nearly as hilly as I was expecting. <laughs> uh, Says I, the guy who lives in Atlanta and trains at Kennesaw well, Mountain and runs up and down hills. Well, that was going to be the, the caveat. So, um, you know, my parents actually attended the race because they wanted to see the pros and kind of see the event. And they heard um, a runner who, you know, whose name escapes you now, but it came from Iowa mm-hmm. and finished very high up in the race. Mm-hmm. And he said, this may be Atlanta flat, but Atlanta flat ain't Iowa flat. Right, right. And so... It, it actually, it was nice because it still was Atlanta. It was still hilly. There were still some hills that you had to conquer, but it was nothing like Peachtree or like Publix where it's almost just a suffer fest and where, you know, you're seeing people's times drop several minutes because it was just so hilly. It so, was hard, dude. I mean, those la- that last two miles is tough. Yeah. Like the last two mile add-on is tough. Like the, the yeah, Rich Kana had said, yeah, it's Atlanta flat, um, which means not very flat. And it was flat for an Atlanta race. Like, like any other Atlanta race that starts in downtown Atlanta, like the public's half marathons in two weeks, right? Right. It's going to be super hilly. And that's a hilly race. Um, uh, the Hot Lana Half Marathon, which is in the summer, the Hot Chocolate fi- 15K, which was uh, last month. Those are really hilly races, and they all start and finish in downtown as well. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely wasn't as hilly as those, um, but but it was a tough race. It was interesting because the pros, and I was, I was talking about this with somebody this morning, the pros are accustomed to running on faster courses and flatter courses, and they were kind of blown away. <laughs> that, that's a you know? great point. And, um, and a lot of people don't quite take that into consideration but you know for the pro you're trying to hit a certain time so you can qualify for the next race so they're almost chasing time a bit more than maybe you know we're used to where we're we're running local races Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's 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 a shock for people that are coming from like an austin texas or or someplace like that yeah you know amy so amy craig the women's winner was talking to peter ray um, from from Zap Endurance, who I'm going to try to get the podcast. this week. Yeah, friend of the podcast, certainly, and, and who we got to hang out with a little bit after the race yesterday. Um, and she said, she was talking about how difficult it was. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, there's going to be uh, two women who run under 230, and, and there's going to be a third woman who's going to run 234, and that's going to be somebody who qualifies for the Olympic Games, which is um, 234 for third place and qualifying for a women's Olympic team. Um, that That's... I mean, that's obviously a great time, but that's not as fast as, as you would normally expect women to run to qualify for the Olympic team from the United States. So Yeah, it's certainly um, didn't compare to like the CIM results from right, a few right. months ago. Yeah, where, where there was, you know, 40 pe- women under 234 probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, the pros were kind of blown away by it. And they're all, they're all being quoted now online talking about how, you know, it's going to take more strength and grit than speed and stuff like that. Um, just cause it's such a hilly course, particularly in those last two miles there with the little, uh, uh last, uh, couple miles there at the end. Um, so yeah, uh, it was fun event. It was cool. It was unique. Um, it was everything we wanted it to be, right? About 2,000 people from the Atlanta area did it. Yeah, big shout out to Rich Kanai and the, the Atlanta Track Club for putting that on. I mean, yeah. just a super fun event. Talk about a great way to capture and kind of build upon, you know, a, a once in a, a lifetime, you know, opportunity with yeah. the trials being here, yeah. um, here, you know, in a, a year from now. So I, I felt very pl- privileged to be able to take part in that event. It was a lot of fun. Um, definitely, you know, enjoyed running the race and being able to kind of catch up with people at the end of the race but you know people i usually train with you know pete ray and some of his athletes things of that nature so big time props to to atc for being able to give us that opportunity all right so so i'll put you on the spot having just said that so and i agree with you atc overall kudos good job uh this is a test event for them too right so this is this is also their chance to see okay what could go wrong you know um anything that you noticed on the course or anything you feel like Okay, they got to fix that for next year. You mean other than the helicopter taking off from <laughs> CNN Center five or six times while they yeah, tried to do the awards? True, Other than having to delay the start because a movie movie being filmed, <laughs> uh, yeah, those things I, I think they will probably uh, those things they'll probably fix. Yeah, during the award ceremony, what uh, what Patrick's talking about is there was literally a helicopter, an air crane, it said that was trying to get something off the top of a building right off on, the, over where we were. Yeah, it was uh, off you, the CNN Center, and we were at the 
like the Georgia World Congress Center, between the World Congress Center and, the, and Phillips Arena, trying to do awards, and it was pretty. Yeah, you definitely could not hear what was going on with yeah. the awards. Um, Brogan Austin won the men's race, by the way, the the defending U.S. champion who won CIM. Um, That's but, right. Uh, since, since we gave Amy Craig a shout out, the men's race was closer. Um, Parker Stinson was second; he was only a few seconds behind. Amy Craig won by a full minute. Um, anything else? Uh, not that I could see. I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, hopefully, I can't wait to see also what the course will look like with more spectators. You yeah, know, I'm sure it'll be just yeah. packed with people out, kind of ready to cheer on. Yeah. Um, but they. Did I, get- I thought it could use more spectators. Um, and I thought I thought that that's something will be fixed. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it could, it could use and but it run, it runs down and back on Peachtree Street, which is the main thoroughfare through Atlanta. So we can definitely get some people out there for sure. Um. And I'll yeah you know, I'll be out there as a spectator as a volunteer certainly. Um. Yeah, I, th- I thought that. The one thing that I thought they might want to be mindful of is um, there were a lot of uh, of those little small manholes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what those are called, but they're not like full-size manholes. They're only about the size of like a cocktail plate. Mm-hmm. Um, those like the little small ones. Yeah. And, and, and the asphalt is dug out around them, and so they're kind of like miniature potholes. There was a lot of those. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and I, didn't, I never stepped in one of them. Um, but they weren't marked or anything like that, and I wonder if they need to mark them or carpet them or something mm-hmm. um, prior to the race next year um, around that loop. So that was the only that was the only thing I noticed. the The two point two mile loop, you actually run an out and back, and you make a quick turn under the Olympic rings at the former Olympic Stadium, which I thought was kind of fun. I I really actually I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of my favorite parts of the race yeah. because it kind of. It also wasn't one you're gonna go. You're gonna go to over and over again. It's not a part of the the bigger loop, but it's kind of like all right, you're you're getting close, and it was kind of a reminder of the '96 games, and right. um, and then runs you back to Centennial Olympic Park. So I really enjoyed right. that part of the course. Me too. Well, congrats to you, man. You're six weeks out from Boston. You had a good race. So so, due for a good race. We talked last week about how you're starting to round into shape a little bit, and that's good. I'm glad to hear it. So uh, hopefully, I will be in a similar place six weeks out from uh, from my race since I'm. Nine weeks out. That's right. <laughs> Very good. Um, so let's uh, let's we're gonna do something new this week. We Patrick and I always kind of like toss out what we're reading, um, and uh, I'm just sort of interested in, in making that a little bit more formalized part of the podcast. So let's take a couple of minutes here. What are you reading right now, Patrick? I'm reading a book called Thinking and Bets by Annie Duke. Thinking and and bets. Thinking and bets. So to give kind of a background on the premise, so she was a professional poker player for many years. Okay. And she talks about how one of the key you know components of of poker is being able to you know separate the difference between skill and luck. Mm-hmm. Hey, I won this hand because I made a good move versus I lost this hand because I had bad luck. So I should keep you know doing the same strategy and just know that over time it will lead to better outcomes more often than not. Okay. And she kind of uses that to talk to frame how she makes decision in her life. She's you know and that's where she comes up with the phrase thinking in bets. When I think about decision making right. in my life, you know whether or not to buy a house, whether or not to invest in something or someone. It is you're always kind of thinking in terms of probabilities and thinking in, in bets. Is this a bet that will pay off in the long run? Yeah, I can it, see that. Um, and I love it. It, it is. <laughs> I first kind of got interested in the book um, actually during the Super Bowl because mm-hmm. you know back in my previous life, so to speak, that really you know when I was working a bit more with professional sports teams, that was a big part of you know any kind of analysis, right? When you're talking about well, why did this team win? Is it because they made good decisions, or was it that they were lucky enough that the referee didn't make a, you know, a boneheaded call or something like right. that? Um, I highly recommend it. It's a great kind of introductory um, piece to anybody who's not used to thinking in those terms. Right um, it, it's kind of similar to the Nate Silver uh, signal and the noise, but I would say it's a bit less academic and a bit more applicable. Um, and it, just a couple of key quotes that I enjoyed from the book that I pulled out. One of them is. Uh, an old quote by someone that's he, where he says, "If luck weren't involved, I would win every game." Hmm. To and I thought that was kind of a neat way to look at or to make to approach a lot of our decisions and kind of how we you know approach different games that we play. And to appreciate the fact that luck exists, right. frankly, because I think there's a lot of people that that oh everything's down to your choices and everything is down to skill and everything's down to how hard you work. But no, luck matters. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm a very very much a believer that there's such a thing as good fortune. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, one of the kind of introductory quotes that I'm reading from right now, she says, quote, there are exactly two things that determine how our lives turn out, the quality of our decisions and luck. There are elements of luck and skill in virtually any outcome. We can't control luck. Mm-hmm. And that's, to me, that's just a, such a beautiful way to kind of frame how we look at things. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I do think it's interesting, too. Like, so, so you focus on your skills, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and not so much in your luck. It kind of circles back around to something we're going to talk about in a, a few minutes. So, yeah, very That's good. That's right. It also kind of helps make you decide, is this a field or arena that's so just wroth with luck that I probably shouldn't even invest anything because even yeah. if I do become skilled, it's not going to be have an impact on you know how my life or my you know investment turns out. Right, right, very good. And 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 it's important to recognize too because you work on your skills, you work on your skills, you work on your skills, and then when the time comes, you might have bad luck. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that working on your skills was not worthwhile. Um, it just means that that. You have to keep on working on them and and hope for that confluence of, of skill and, and good luck later. Yeah, I mean, you and I talk about that with running. I mean, yep. you know, you were talking about that yesterday. Things came to, came together well for you, and certainly you were prepared for a really good race yesterday. But but there was an element of luck in that in terms of weather and 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 other things as well, right? Um, and so so yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's important. That's right, it, 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 because it allows you to also kind of give yourself space and time. Because mm-hmm. if you know that luck is going to be involved, then you know, hey, this. If this race didn't pan out, you know, maybe, you know, let's give it time. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, and then over, over time, you know, I will get the outcomes I'm looking for. Right on, right on. So I'm, I'm right now reading, a, I just started reading a novel over the course of the past couple of weeks that I will be continuing to read for a while called Sleeping Beauties. It's by Stephen King and his son. It's the first, um, the first joint book that they've written together. Um, and it reads like a Stephen King book. So, so you can't quite make out where he's writing, where his son's writing, which is good. <laughs> right. Um, but my wife gave it to me for Christmas and then I'm going to read it and then she's going to read it. And then I gave her a book and she's going to read it. Then I'm going to read it. And so it's about the Atlanta cheating scandal that was actually written by, uh, by one of my former students. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I have, I'm, I'm not far enough into sleeping beauties yet. And it's a long book as most Stephen King books are to, to really tell you a whole lot about the big takeaways here. I also found though this week when I was thinking about what I was reading, I tend to read a lot of long form articles um Mm -hmm. and and uh i tend to kind of sometimes get bogged down in the news and reading news rather than 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 reading books and so this week was you know a lot of news with you know michael cohen and kim jong-un and um and stuff like that and so i I found myself reading a lot of news and news analysis this week um i did read an article in new york times magazine recently um about women and big wave surfing um, and about how women and a few in- individual women are kind of pushing open the door in big wave surfing and trying to get um, equal representation um, both at the large competitions um, and, of course, in prize money. Um, and I never knew uh, how much sexism was built into big wave surfing um, hmm. that that um, literally by its very nature, it was supposed to be this manly activity that, that demonstrated masculinity and your dominance over other men. Um, and now women come in and start doing it and, um, there's a real fierce resistance and they've, they've faced a lot of resistance over the course of the past decade or so, um, as they've been trying to push back against, uh, the inherent masculinity and toxic masculinity inside of big wave surfing. So that was super interesting. Um, um, yeah, there was a, a article I read this week, uh, on efficiency that, that I think it was in runner's world that talked about the, the efficiency study that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. And it actually included a, a calculator in it where you could type in your time and, and your improvement, your efficiency improvement. It would give you your efficiency improvement and tell you how much you could, you could take off your time, which I thought was kind of fun. Um, well, my interesting takeaway from that is I might have to look up that calculator, type in the like right? Nike Vaporfly 4%. Exactly. Yeah, you were wearing your Vaporfly 4%, weren't you, yesterday? Mm-hmm. I was not wearing my Vaporflies yesterday. I was wearing a, a pair of racing flats, but not Vaporflies, and I could definitely feel the difference. I was like, yeah, these are a lot harder shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of shoes, you saw that the we mentioned last week, Asics uh, made this big announcement. They were like, oh, we're going to release our most technologically advanced shoe of all time. They they released a $250 training shoe called the Asics MetaRide. Um, and give them some credit for, okay, it's it's got some technological advancements in it. It's not just like, this is an awesome shoe, and it's the same thing they've always done. Right. Um, it has some 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 different elements to it. We'll talk about it when we talk about news and research, but uh, but yeah, you might want to check that out. And then, of course, speaking of shoes, did you see that the uh, the, the Skechers ad in the New York Times and USA Today and the Wall Street Journal? I did not, no. Okay, so Skechers Performance put out an ad that I think it's today in the New York Times, um, and it's been over the course of the past couple of days, um, but it has a picture of a pair of shoes, a pair of basketball shoes, and they're not branded. They're just like a white pair of shoes, and and the left shoe is completely blown apart the same way that Zion Williamson's shoe was blown apart oh after boy. The, during that basketball game, um, and it's kind of this black and white, real stark-looking picture, and then it says in big block letters, just blew it. 
as opposed to just do it. Nice. Um, and then under where it says, we won't split on you. <laughs> well done. Skechers performance. So throwing some real shade Skechers is at Nike there. Um, like not even remotely hiding what the, 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 uh, the message there, uh, which I thought was pretty funny too. Um, one other thing that I read this week that I would point out, um, Lope Magazine, which I've talked about on the podcast before, they came out about a year ago, I want to say, um, and they write long-form articles on um, on running, um, which is great. Uh, the very first one that came out was something titled something the effect of the history of American women according to the steeplechase or something like that. And I was really excited about reading it, and it kind of sucked. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it was a significant commitment, you know, 20 minutes to read an article. Um, and, and I'm glad I read it, but it just wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't draw these big picture things I thought it would. They had a better one this week um, that came out this week, and it was called Innocent People Don't Run. And it was about a guy named Hugh Burton, um, who, um, and this is not a spoiler, um, he was wrongly convicted of a crime and spent a lot of years in jail. Um, and that soured him. <laughs> needless to say um and yeah. it, it it very adversely affected him um obviously going to jail is going to adversely affect a lot of people but going to jail for something you didn't do um very adversely affected him and he kind of got a lot of his humor back um and a lot of the more positive aspects of his personality his better angels returned to him um when he started running and training for marathons Hmm. Um, and so, so it's, it's an interesting article. Again, innocent people don't run on Lope magazine. Uh, you can check that out too. So yeah, very good. Um, all right. This week is topic week. We're going to talk a little bit about motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, we had had a few people reach out to us, um, uh, and asking us about motivation, talking to us about motivation. You know, we're coming out of the winter, um, in most places around the United States, not everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of folks are kind of out of the habit. They might have taken a couple uh, months off there in the winter. They might have had a big fall goal and, and they recover from that. They went into the holidays or something like that. Um, and a lot of people are kind of looking for motivation and, and, and are having, struggling to, to kind of get back in the swing of things. Um, and so what we wanted to do today is talk about a lot of research related to motivation. And kind of like we do on here a lot, um, we, we, we want to give you some advice, but we don't want to be prescriptive. And so we're going to kind of offer a lot of different pieces of information and some research and, and some of our own personal experience and stuff. Um, and, uh, and then take with it as you will and, and reach out to us on Facebook and talk to us about your own personal experience. So what I'm going to offer here is, is four pieces of advice or four pieces of, of information that you should keep in mind when you're trying to find your motivation once again here uh, after a big race, after coming out of a transition season, something else like that. So, ready? I'm ready. All right, very good. Uh, Patrick's going to be, be serving as the role of color commentator this week, and, and I'll, I'll be the play-by-play guy. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, very good. Um, so the first thing that I would say to people, if, if they say to me, okay, I'm struggling with motivation, is I would say that you need to set a goal. Um, now, setting a goal looks different for different people. For me, I've always found that setting a goal means putting a race on the calendar. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 25 years. I always kind of have a race on the calendar. I find that I am more motivated if I go ahead and put a race on the calendar. Now, that being said, I think I put too many races on the calendar this spring. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't think I know you yeah. put too many races and so, on the calendar so, so, so I may have overcorrected on this goal myself. Um, yeah, over the... Including this weekend and then going to Flying Pig weekend, there are 10 weekends and I have seven races. I'm thinking about taking one of them off, but we, you and I can talk about that later on. Uh, a lot of them are out of town. So yeah, I, I'm good about putting races on the calendar. That motivates me. That gets me going. However, it might not be great for everybody. Uh, in fact, for most people, I would recommend that rather than putting races on a calendar, rather than sort of setting this extrinsic goal, certainly rather than saying, I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to look better in my bikini by spring break or something else like that. Um, How'd you know that was my goal for the spring break? So, well, you know, I, I know you, man. Um, and so I would suggest that, that for most people, it's probably better to set what's called a process goal. And we've talked about process goals on this, on this podcast before. Um, process goals are exactly what they sound like. You set a goal related to the process. Rather than saying, this is what the outcome is going to be, I want to run this race, you say, all right, I'm going to set a process goal. I'm going to do 15 minutes worth of core work every other day, or I'm going to always go to this group fitness class or something like that. Um, When I was struggling for motivation to improve my swimming a few years ago, I said, okay, between now and spring break, which was about uh, 12 weeks, I'm going to go to Masters three times a week. 
master swimming classes three mm-hmm. times a week, right? Um, and so, so setting up a process goal like that. Now, there is some research on this. Um, a particular study that, that was kind of pivotal in 2011 um, touched off a lot of conversations about process goals. Um, it was called the effect of goal setting on motivation and adherence in a six-week exercise program. It was an international journal of sport and exercise psychology, and it was by Kylie Wilson and Darren Brookfield. Um, and what they did is they took 60 recreational exercisers, what they called recreational exercisers, uh, 33 men and 27 women, age 31 was their average age. Um, they went anywhere from about uh, 20 to 42. Um, and they were randomly assigned to either what they called a process goal group, an outcome goal group, or a no goal control group. So people just kind of staying in shape, okay. right? Um, and so 15 of them were in the process goal group, 15 of them were in the outcome goal group, and 30 of them were in the control group. Um, and they said that repeated measures indicated that the participants in the process goal group scored significantly higher interest and enjoyment and perceived choice, significantly lower pressure and tension, uh, and had significantly greater adherence compared to the outcome goal and control groups. So they enjoyed it more, they felt less pressure around it, and most importantly, they tended to stick to their schedules better. Mm-hmm. Um, when they actually uh, focus more on the process rather than focusing on the outcome or having no focus whatsoever and just kind of not setting a goal at all. Um, what do you think about that? Okay, so let's go over the three things that they that they accomplish at, mm-hmm. be, by being focus-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, process-oriented. So, process-oriented, yes. So what was the first one? Higher interest and enjoyment. Okay, I think that's a big one because we, I think when you focus on process, you are able to enjoy that moment mm-hmm. because you get to experience a victory every day yeah right if let's say your process goal is i just want to exercise for 30 minutes you get like and let's say you're setting this goal january 1st and you have a may marathon i'm just going to pick that example right on and let's say you accomplish that goal every day from january to may or let's say you accomplish it 80 90 percent of the time Mm -hmm. you have so many more victories Mm -hmm. than losses right on right whereas if your goal is just to run the marathon you never get to experience that victory. Yeah. You just keep sludging in the cold. You just keep going on these runs when it's cold and dark and rainy, right. and you never actually get that victory. That's an excellent point. Um, so that's the first one. So what was the second? And, and, and you might not and you might not get that victory come May. Like 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 the victory is is uncertain. So that know? was going to be my next point because you you what, so same the two the second and third outcome. Okay. Mentioned. So so the second outcome is significantly lower pressure or tension. There you go. So. The pressure comes in because when your goal is to win, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's so many things that can happen that are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. Almost like we, just like we talked about with the book recommendation, mm-hmm. the thinking and bets. Mm-hmm. So you're almost putting a lot of pressure on. Oh, at the end of the game, at the end of the, at on May on race day, am I going to perform? Am I going to hit this time goal? Right. Qualify for Boston. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure there, mm-hmm. and you feel that pressure from January first all the way through May. And even mm-hmm. if you blow your goal out of the water and you kill it on race day, you still feel that pressure the entire time and oh, never yeah. experience that victory or that sense of relief until For the sure. very end when yeah. you almost don't need it anymore. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're process oriented, you can say, I, I won today. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did it today. Mm-hmm. And what's and, and I'll kind of throw a, a, a side note to that. Um, thinking back to my own New Year's resolutions, and we talked about those you know, a couple months ago, in my resolutions and a few of my resolutions, I said, I want to do this more days than I don't do it. Yeah. You know, I want to read the newspaper more days than I don't read the newspaper. I want to, to floss my teeth more days than I don't floss my teeth. Setting it up that way has actually been really, really good for me. Yeah. Um, that Because that way, if I miss a day, it's okay. Because I only need to do it half the days plus one. Right, right. <laughs> you know, if I miss a day, it's all right. Um, I do two or three days in a row. Hey, I'm set for the week. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's very much that kind of celebrating the victories and lowering the tension that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely makes for a lot better. The third one was greater adherence compared to outcome goal and control groups. So uh, they stuck to the schedule better. Yeah. And that's probably because, once again, your goal is the schedule. So then yeah. you're focused on the schedule. Right. And you kind of let the final score take care of itself, so to speak. And it's and it's synergistic. And this is something we're going to talk a little bit more about in just a minute. It's a spoiler for, for tip two here. But but you get these victories and they snowball. Like mm-hmm. you say, you know, okay, so you get a victory on Monday. You get a victory on Tuesday. You get a victory on Wednesday. Oh, not so good on Thursday. You get a victory on Friday. But it snowballs mm-hmm. such that you get more accustomed to the victories and, and, you, and you become more motivated over time. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I think that's good. 
Um, all right, so a couple other kind of things about that. Um, now, now we mentioned enjoyment um, or or you know less pressure and intention all that sort of thing. I mentioned another uh, quick uh, study here uh, called a qualitative analysis of emotional facilitators and exercise. Um, and it was done by uh, some German researchers in 2016 and it was published in Frontiers in Psychology. Uh, in this study they took 24 adults, 12 females and 12 uh, males, um, and they were all people who had been doing a recreational sport, various sports, for at least five years. Um, and they did some in-depth interviews with them about their sport and exercise habits, about their long-term participation, about their emotional response and all that sort of thing. And they found there were four factors that were uh, associated with the emergence of positive emotions in recreational sports and exercise. So in other words, they were saying, okay, what is it that, that, that gives these people the satisfaction that they need? What is it about their sporting stuff that gives them the satisfaction they need that it has them actually continue to stick to it? Right, um, and so I think these are important things to kind of keep in mind. You're thinking about, okay, what is my process going to be? Like, what are my process goals going to be? Right. All right. So first one is perceived competence, mm -hmm. and we're actually going to come back to this later on. But it kind of dovetails, I think, with with what you say with the victories. Right. If you if you feel like you're getting a victory every single day, you're going to think feel like you're more competent. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so you need to feel as if this is something you can do. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, the second one is perceived social in, uh, interaction. Um, so communications with others, being a part of a group, creating close relationships or friendships, that kind of thing, right? And Absolutely. so, so, so you're actually connecting with the, with a larger group. We're going to circle back to that one as well. Um, the third one, I thought these third and fourth ones were the interesting ones, the main ones I want to talk about. The third one is what they called novelty experience in contrast to other non-sporting activities, such as work, family, or other leisure activities. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, they said that that whether you're playing soccer or whether you're running or whatever it is that you're doing um, as part of your sporting life, as part of your training life, as part of your exercising life, it needs to be something that's really different from the rest of your life. Yes. Which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that I, yeah, I talk about that. <laughs> so, I, so I have two takeaways from that. So one, so in Richard, Florida has talked a lot about this. And I don't know if, it, if our listeners are familiar, but Richard, Florida is almost like the Malcolm Gladwell of urban studies. Okay. Um, he's been on like the Colbert Report every now and again, but he's he's big in kind of making these these kind of big sweeping connections. And he talked about in the early 2000s, he introduced this idea of the rise of the creative class. And he talked about how like, you know, our grandparents, especially like the, you know, the, the depressionary generation, um, it was, you know, blue collar work kind of is what dominated, right? And he, he talks about how now we don't really have blue collar versus, versus white collar versus pink collar, et cetera. That is not really the, the best way to frame how we complete our work or find meaning in work. Right. It really is about this rise of the creative class where you're asked to create something. Okay. You're in marketing. You are in, um, you know, technology where you're having to create, you know, coding languages, example, or, you know, take coding languages and create new code. Okay. Um, you're having to create something. Mm-hmm. Now, that obviously requires a lot of sitting down stationary work at a computer. Right. Right? Um, and this really kind of started as, as Mad Men kind of showed that show mm -hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s as, you know, first television took off, you know, advertising exploded. And then, of course, with the rise of the Internet, we've just become more and more of a um, kind of office down. of a stationary society. Yeah. Ambie Burfoot, the runner's world writer, uh, I remember very well once said, we no longer go to work, we go to sit. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> And it's, it's no coincidence that the jogging boom happened in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Once it became, you know, Normal. a contrast, mm -hmm. you know, running served as a contrast to what you did on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Like, I think about my, my granddad who was, you know, grew up in South Georgia. I couldn't, I, I don't think I could ever explain to him what marathon running is because he'd be like, why on earth? Like, because he, he worked with his hands. Right. He was tired at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. Um, Whereas I'm almost like busting at the seams to get out the door and mm -hmm. to do something and to kind of explore and use my right. muscles and create kinetic energy. Right. Um, he was the opposite. He mm -hmm. was trying to rest his body and exercise his mind at the end of the day. The German researchers had the same theory, by the way. Mm -hmm. so, so the folks who wrote this study had the same theory that, that the reason why it needs to be a novelty experience is because, um, is because they believe, and, and I, I've heard a lot of people that believe this, um, and and um, I don't know whether I do or not. I need to, to, to uh, think about it a little bit more, but um, they believe that there's something inside of us that drives us to move mm -hmm. and to be active 
Um, and that, that um, in the absence of that, given the fact that, I mean, the whole thing's predicated on sitting. You and I are sitting right now. I mean, think about, you know, an average American's life. Okay, so you get up, you go downstairs, you get ready, you go downstairs, you sit down, you have breakfast. You get in your car and you sit for your commute or you, or you, you know, sit in the train, you sit for your commute, you go to work, you sit in front of your computer, you might get up and go to the water cooler, you go to lunch, you sit for, you know, obviously you commute back home, you watch, you sit and you watch some TV, mm-hmm. right? And there's a lot of content out there for you to sit and watch or, 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 or surf the internet or whatever happens to be. So just the whole thing is predicated on sitting and, and there's not physical challenge there. Um, and, and they believe that there's something deep inside of us that, that makes us yearn for that physical challenge um, and, and this capitalizes on that, right? Yeah. Um, so my mind is kind of exploding with reactions to, or kind of, you know, um, tangents, but it, it reminds me a lot of a study that, that David Epstein, um, reported on, mm-hmm. um, at, in, at the MIT Sloan, uh, conference a few years ago. And this, in this study, they took, you know, a bunch of lab, uh, rats or lab mice. Um, and what they did is they, they put them in a cage, like one by one. And they gave them a wheel that they could run in. Mm-hmm. Some of the mice hopped in the wheel and just started running. Right. There was no motivation. Mm-hmm. They just they they kind of craved the physical activity. Right. Some of the mice didn't. Mm-hmm. So then they what they do is they would separate the runners and the non-runners, mm-hmm. and then they would breed the non-runners amongst themselves. Right. Then they would breed the runners amongst themselves. Right. And what they saw was like three or four generations down. What happened was the runners were like crack addicts. Right. Like they literally That's ran themselves to, to death. <laughs> they like they literally got themselves hurt and put themselves in physical harm because they could not stop running. They just had this right. urge to keep running over and over and over right. again. The non-runners right. were like, I mean, they would just like plop down like a bag of flour and right. just like not even move. Like and some he, of them couldn't even motivate themselves to get up to eat. Right. Um, so that does kind of highlight that we do, and we there's have a very, genetic predisposition. There is a for genetic predisposition yeah. to. At least you know, among mice. Enjoying activity, at least mm-hmm. among mice. But right. I would imagine for humans, there is probably a varying degree where some people really enjoy the physical activity. And that's what motivates them to play soccer, to run marathons, and to just to just kind of engage in physical movements. Well, I, I do think that there's, um, I do, you know, the, the, the and we're going to go way back here, the, the population of Homo sapiens in the world, mm-hmm. 200,000 years ago, dipped down to only being about 50,000. Okay. individuals right um and then they 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 moved out and they populated around the earth and all that sort of thing and then of course now we have more than eight billion homo sapiens living on earth right and so if you say okay what did that group of fifty thousand have and what did they need and and how did they survive right mm-hmm. in in order to to be able to then thrive in the natural environment i i very strongly believe as an educator i very strongly believe that they had to have an intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. and a willingness to experiment um, and so I think that there's something fundamental in our humanness that makes us curious. And I see that in my sons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're five years old and they have a profound fundamental curiousness mm-hmm. um, and curiosity um, that, that frankly, tragically, you know, when I taught high school, sometimes I wouldn't see it anymore. Um, you know, so something happened or we did something to, to, to adolescents, to kids, that, that makes them lose that fundamental curiousness, right? Right. I, I, think, I think it makes sense, and I'm thinking about this as we're talking about it, it makes sense to me that at the same time, there was probably a fundamental drive to movement and a fundamental drive to physicality. Because in that population of 50,000 um, homo sapiens, the ones who were just going to sit around probably didn't make it <laughs> you know yeah and they probably didn't make it um and so so now it's worth saying that there's probably been some mutations over the course of those last two hundred thousand genes to where you know there are probably now woven back into the human gene pool that you know a lack of curiosity or a lack of of desire to move among some people but but i would say the overwhelming population uh, of the of the world probably still has that fundamental desire to move so yeah i said i said a few minutes ago i need to think about it more and i'm literally thinking about it more as we're talking about it here so yuval uh noah herrera who's off of the book sapiens mm-hmm. um, yeah you talked about that before yeah. really the kind of preeminent thinker in, in that field he actually says that's what made homo sapiens the survivor is our ability to um see things that don't exist mm-hmm. and that kind of ability to create stories yeah fictional yeah. stories yeah you had said that, that, that um, we, we, we could we could think on a level that other people couldn't quite think. and like like for example money other has animals. no actual value but we can actually 
create a fictional story right. and share that story and agree to that story that right. money does indeed have value. Right. right. Um, and that's how we were able to kind of build right. large societies. All right, so let me tell you the number four, because the number four actually kind of dovetails too here. So you remember we're talking about this, the four factors that were identified that were associated with the emergence of positive emotions in recreational sport and exercise, right? So the, so they said perceived competence, perceived social interaction, novelty experience in contrast to other non-sporting activities. And the fourth thing they said was perceived physical exertion comprising the degree of exhaustion. Um, and so in other words, uh, you, it had to be hard. Yeah. Like, 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 and so, so people wanted to actually really work hard, they said. Um, and, and that was something else. Um, a lot of the interviews they talked about a happy exhaustion. Clearly, they haven't, you know, yeah. read the same books you and I have read. They haven't listened to our podcast, you know, so give it its close. name. Yeah, so close. Um, it was actually more for men than women, they said in, in their study. Um, but, but nonetheless, this idea of, of really working hard and coming to the end of the day and I just got to work and, and like the idea of going to physical exhaustion, not just sort of spinning, mm-hmm. you know, and not just, you know, leisurely walking around the neighborhood, but like truly trying to get to exhaustion or truly working hard. There was something about that as well. And the, and the authors likewise posited that, that that was attractive to people because it's a departure from their daily life. Yes. Um, because so rarely in our daily life are we pushed to exhaustion. And so the idea of in our sporting activities um, actually pushing us to exhaustion, um, that would be gratifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so when you think of it in terms of motivation, um, as weird as this sounds... Um, and it's contrary, frankly, to, to physiology as it may be. If you're struggling to get motivated, you might actually be better off doing a 20-minute workout that's kind of hard than, than you would be trying to go out and run for 40 minutes easy. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when you and I have somebody you know, who just comes onto our rosters, we, we tend to put a lot of easy stuff on their, on their schedule. But maybe we're wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, or maybe that's like yeah. the physiologically the best thing to do to, to slowly build, but maybe from a, an emotional perspective, they almost which is that important. challenge each week. Yeah, yeah which is important. To keep the motivation up. Yeah. There was a guy named Lou Hollander um, who for a while was the oldest finisher at Kona, um, and he's not anymore. There was the Japanese guy this year that, that uh, finished at age 86, but Lou Hollander did it several years in a row, and he used to say that he had a couple of different rules for living. There was two big ones. One is he never ate anything where he couldn't identify the parts. Okay. And so, so he never ate hot dogs, for example, because you look at hot dog, you're like, what's that made of? You don't know. He never ate that. Um, and so, frankly, it's another way of saying, you know, he only ate whole foods. The other thing is, he said, I go anaerobic every day. Um, and so, so, and I think, I think he, what he meant by that is, he crosses his his aerobic threshold every day. Yeah. Right. And so he says, you kind of jog around, you warm up, you run up a hill. By the time you get to the top of that hill, if you push it up the hill, you probably cross your threshold. You're good. He's like that. That checks it off for the day. Okay. Um, and kind of, so so it kind of dovetails with that, right? So that um, makes sense. Where he's not he's not doing a forty minute, you know, right set of repeats of four hundred. Right. He's just, just hitting it once. Just crossing threshold right. every day, every day, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I, and I would say that even though you and I um, and the people that we coach do mostly easy stuff. Um, you know, we live in a hilly area. You cr- you you run up a hill, your heart rate's going to go up, and and it probably crosses threshold. If I, you know, when you and I run at Kennesaw Mountain, I look at my data afterwards, and the the average heart rate is right where it needs to be, right there in zone two. But when we get near the top of Pigeon Hill, it's pretty close to threshold, yep. even on long runs. Mm-hmm. You know, just because that's what it takes in order to be able to get to the top of that hill. Yeah, uh, and like I wonder if Striders count it as a part of the sure. You know, part yeah. of that, and we do Striders even on most easy days. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so. That kind of talks all about that. That was a very long number one, right? And like I said, we're kind of giving you a lot of information and, and seeing what you can get from it. But the point being here is that that uh, a good way to get motivated is to set a goal, and it doesn't have to be putting a race on your calendar. It can be a process goal. It should be a process goal, um, and then. You know, given these four factors, perceived competence, perceived social interaction, novelty of the experience, um, and perceived physical exertion, those are things you can kind of think of when, you, when you're actually formulating your process goals. Um, so very good. Uh, number two, second thing I would go ahead and advise, and we've advised this before, um, uh, is start. <laughs> go ahead and get started. I think there's always a good reason not to start. Oh, I'll start on Monday. I'll start after the weekend. Oh, I'll start the first day of next month. I'll start on the new year. You know, whatever it happens to be. There's always kind of a reason to not start. Go ahead and start. Um, um, usually the reason to not start is not as good as the reason to start. Um, and so so you should just go ahead and just kind of get it underway. 
right? Um, now, two things I kind of want to mention about that. First is once you actually get started, you need to kind of flip the way that you're thinking about motivation. I think a lot of people, and, and, I, and I've seen this in the emails that people have sent me over the course of the past couple of months, people tend to think of motivation as, okay, I got to get motivated, then I'm going to go do it. So George, tell me how to get motivated so I can, I can put some motivation in myself and then use that to go start exercising. Um, and you got to kind of flip the way you're thinking about that. You don't wait for motivation to come. Mm-hmm. You just start. So, so you don't, oh, I got to get motivated to do this 20-minute run. No, you don't. Just go do the 20-minute run. And then the motivation will actually come. Like those, like we were talking about a little while ago, those, those daily, those weekly wins will begin to accrue. And the motivation will kind of take care of itself. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about that? Absolutely. I can even tell you kind of a personal example was running the road to the gold yesterday. Mm-hmm. I really had no goals heading into that, that race. Kind of no, I didn't know what to expect from the eight-mile course i didn't know what to expect from just an eight mile race period mm-hmm. i wasn't really sure what to expect from my body because i didn't taper anything i just mm-hmm. kind of blew right, right through the, the training week but then once the gun goes off it was like all right we, we can do this i'm just gonna go catch this person right all right now i've caught that person i'm gonna catch this person right and it, it gets back to what you were talking about with once you start and you you run on monday maybe you start a streak mm-hmm. then you're like well i don't want to blow my streak on tuesday mm-hmm. You know, and, and it kind of builds on itself. Or maybe right. you think that that was a good feeling I had on Monday. I want to chase that again on, on yeah. Tuesday. Yeah. And, and hey, this is working. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and you kind of get this snowball effect that happens. Now, Now I recognize that me saying, hey, don't get motivated for your 20-minute run. Just go do your 20-minute run. That, that can sound a little bit condescending. Um, but it doesn't have to be a 20-minute run. Just do something. Yeah, and I think yeah. the kind of overall takeaway is like, don't wait for magic to happen. Right. You know, you have to kind of put in the work, and it will be a bit of a grind at first. Mm-hmm. But you know, slowly but surely, you'll f- you'll also find what you enjoy and what motivates you yeah. if you just start. Yeah. yeah, but if you but if you're if you're looking to wake up one morning and be like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, today's the day I'm feeling it. It's probably not going to happen. Right. Um, if you're waiting to like feel motivated to go lift weights after work. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody's motivated after work, you know? Um, it's just, you know, you're tired. Your brain is tired, particularly if you're doing some some, some sort of creative work, which most of us are. Um, and so you're just, you're, you're going to be tired and it's just not going to happen. So if you're, if you're waiting for motivation to come, you, you got to flip that. You can't wait for it. You have to just go ahead and get started. And, and yeah, it might be a grind, like you just said. Yeah, it might kind of suck, but, but the motivation ultimately will arrive. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what you have to do. Um, now, along the same lines, once you do actually get started, the second thing I would suggest about getting started here, um, sort of like sub point two of point two, um, is to make sure that you keep your focus on the process. Yeah. Um, and so just make sure you're, you're continuing to keep your the, those process goals in mind and just stay in the moment of your training. So even if you've signed up for a race nine weeks, 10 weeks, 18 weeks from now, um, make sure you're still thinking about, okay, what do I got to do today? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do I need to make sure that I'm taking care of today? What clothing do I need to pack in my bag to make sure that I have, you know, either to change after my workout to go to work or to change after work to go to my workout? You know, what, what do I need to do? How is my day going to unfold to actually make, you know, what, what can I possibly do today even? Just kind of stay focused on that process. Um, and I want to tell a quick story that I read recently in, in Guardian magazine, um, that was about a guy named Bryce Carlson. Um, Bryce Carlson in August of 2018 broke the world record for the fastest west to east unsupported row across the North Atlantic Ocean. The North Atlantic Ocean. Now it took you know, over a month to do, Good and he did gosh. it. He did it straight up solo too. He wasn't doing it with a group. The record that he broke um, it was a little bit over 38 days. Um, had formerly been held by four guys. Like, so a boat of four people, and he set off solo from Newfoundland, uh, and 38 days later, he landed at the Isles of Sealy um, uh, solo, right? Um, now, interestingly, now, now this guy, Bryce Carlson, actually has a PhD in some science. Okay. Um, and he's a science, interestingly, he's a science high school teacher, um, but uh, he has a PhD in science, and so he has some connections inside of, of academia. And so a guy named Kevin Alshuler, who's a psychologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine, actually studied him throughout. Um, and, and so Bryce was willing to, to be studied, essentially, and he filled out questionnaires all throughout and all that sort of thing. Um, and what Alshuler found is, is that Bryce Carlson, yeah, he clearly had this big, important goal, crossing the North Atlantic in a boat, 
um, solo um, in under 38 days or in about 38 days. Um, but he wasn't thinking about that the whole time. Mm-hmm. He wasn't like rowing along being like 38 days, 38 days, 38. I mean, that's just not the way it worked. Right. Um, rather, what he found is that that um, on both a large basis, a daily, weekly basis, and on a granular basis, minute by minute, um, what he was constantly thinking about was the process itself. Okay, what do I got to do right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for example, in one point, he, he landed in an adverse current that pulled him in the wrong direction. Um, and Bryce Carlson wrote in his diary, quote, I focused on what was near at hand and controllable, navigated my boat as best I could, hope the current will weaken overnight, nothing else I can do, unquote, right? And in talking about that, Al Schuler, the psychologist, actually said that this shows his ability to be fully aware of what's going on, fully present with the challenge that's there, and yet then redirect his response to what's in his control and let's go of what's out of his control, mm-hmm. unquote, right? And so so it's this idea that that... Yeah, he's got this goal, and he's in the process of, of accomplishing this goal, right? But but he's but he's still remaining focused on the day to day, the minute by minute, that that actual uh, process, rather than than getting bogged down in the goal itself. He's not thinking outside of himself. He's not like, oh, I need to make this split, or or oh, I need, he he's not thinking about those things. He's just staying in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think about that? Absolutely, and it gets back to kind of how we we frame, you know, what's in our control versus what's out of our control, mm-hmm. and then you know, kind of understanding, you know, when we make decisions, we're not trying to, we're not improving decision quality, quality by trying to guarantee success, Mm -hmm. but simply by improving the out the chances of success. Right. And the best way to do that is to say, what situation am I in right now? Then what's the best way to react or move forward from where I am? Yeah. It it reminded me a lot of when, um, of Race Across America, you know, Mm -hmm. which my wife did on a two-person team back in 2013 where I was crew, which Thomas Odom, who I coach, is doing this summer um, to raise money for the Kyle Pease Foundation. He's doing it as a soloist, which Mm -hmm. is incredible. Um, He's doing it by, by himself. But it's a race. Um, and you know you have to make progress. You can't stop for long periods of time. You're hardly sleeping. Um, but after two or three days of it, you kind of get into this groove, and it's like you know this is just my life right now. Right. And you're not paying attention to the news, and you're not. I mean, it's just like okay, need to eat, need to drink, need to get over this hill. Let's let's think about what the transition is going to be. Let's get all these various things moved into the next event. I mean, you just it's just sort of this is what my life is. Right, and you're um, just very highly hyper-focused on fundamentals. Yeah, yeah, and and ultimately we accomplished the goal. Um, you know, we broke the record and they went just over eight days, but but um, essentially you make a goal and then you forget it. <laughs> you make you make a goal and then you and then you start you go about accomplishing the goal and you and you just sort of put the goal out of your head. Yeah. You know, um, you, you you make a goal and you forget it. You make yeah. a goal and and then you focus on the process. Um, all right. Um, so third, third piece of advice I would give about getting motivated is to focus on what you can do and not what you can't do. And I realize that sounds kind of similar to what I just said, but it's not, um, um, rather when you're thinking about your body and thinking about what your body can do and what you're capable of, you should focus on what you are, are, are able to do and not what you're not able to do. So, so rather than thinking about, oh, I'm so out of shape. Oh, I can't lift this. Oh, I'm so slow. Oh, other people are faster than I am. All that sort of thing. Instead, focus on, hey, what can you do? I, I'm strong. This is so great that I can actually do this. I can run uh, really well. Uh, I'm, I'm stronger than all this, all that sort of thing. So there was a, a an interesting study on this I found uh, from 2014 in a journal called Body Image, by the way, which I thought was an interesting journal title. Um, appearance-based exercise motivation moderates the relationship between exercise frequency and positive body image. Now, what they did in this is they examined whether exercise frequency was related to three aspects of positive body image among 321 college women. Now, um, to be clear, um, they explained positive body image uh, by saying this. They said, quote, individuals with positive body image appreciate their bodies, they hold an internal perspective of their bodies, um, and they're satisfied with the functionality of their bodies, unquote. Um, and so they're not always, again, not always thinking about what they can't do, but they're thinking about what they can do. They, 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 they appreciate their body for the incredible machines that they actually are. Um, and what they found among these 321 college women is that their exercise frequency was uh, directly correlated to and was positive related with uh, a higher positive body image. And so when, when, when these 321 college women, rather than thinking about, I have to lose this weight, I'm too fat, 
Um, everybody else is better looking than I am, mm-hmm. whatever it happened to be. I'm not going to look good in my bikini come spring break. Um, that, that if they focused on positive body image, um, they, they tended to stick to their schedules better um, and tended to, to have higher exercise frequency. So if you focus less on what you, uh, if you're focused on what you can do, you'll do more. If you're focused on what you can't do, you'll do less. Mm-hmm. Right? What do you think about that? I think it's, uh, I think it's actually more enlightening than it, than it even sounds. I mean, a lot of folks kind of grew up maybe with this mentality of the kind of spare the rod, spoil the child, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have to break down to build up first. Mm-hmm. But it almost proves that you almost have to build up first mm-hmm. about what you can do, about what is possible. You know, before saying, "Oh, you're." so weak and you need to improve say mm-hmm. hey you have a lot of potential right now yeah you we just need to focus on these areas and we'll yeah. start to see that potential blossom into something you know more powerful and more tangible right on. and that's a pretty powerful shift in mentality from you know oh i'm so overweight or i'm so out of shape or i'm so this or that and i need to improve because then you're not striving to be average or you're not striving to be confident you're saying i have the potential to be great right here's how i can achieve that right and it's right. a very different mentality and we all know this i mean you know human beings are kind of wired for the hunt right we're, we're we're kind of wired to kind of chase something and not just chase and we're not you know we're not really wired to defend right i mean okay. we were hunters before we were farmers so to speak right where we you're, you're you're chasing goal rather than just kind of sitting back and we were scavengers before we were both yeah keep going um <laughs> right and that really kind of plays into our psychology too we're so much more motivated to chase greatness than we are just to say, well, let's just avoid failure. Hmm. I mean, how many great speeches in history did you hear someone, you know, from JFK to Franklin Roosevelt to Martin Luther King said, hey, guys, let's just be average. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not how it is. It's, more of it's, the same. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, hey, guys, just don't fail and we'll be good. Right. Um, you know, no one gives us or no coach says, hey, guys, just don't fall start. Mm-hmm. We say, hey, here's how you're going to achieve greatness. I mean, here's look, how you're going to... Yeah you know um you know really engage in the chase absolutely i mean look look at the look at the last two two presidents of the united states who are profoundly different people Mm -hmm. um yes we can and make america great again i mean both of them are 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 these supposed to be inspiring uplifting messages not about hey let's just be average yeah Mm -hmm. so so i think you make a good point um I, I saw a woman yesterday uh, at Road to Gold that I haven't seen in probably 15 years. And when I last saw her, she was doing triathlons and stuff. And so I said, hey, you're doing triathlons. And it was kind of, you're still doing triathlons. She kind of looked at me funny because right. it's been so long since she's done one. <laughs> like 13 yeah. years. Yeah, and, and, but yeah, I didn't know. Um, and, uh, and, and she actually said that she, um, this was the longest run she had done in, in five or six years Um, because she broke her foot in 2013 and then she didn't let it heal well and that ended up leading to a knee injury and so she said now I'm at this place where I just really appreciate being able to go out and do this stuff Mm -hmm. Um, and and it it was just a healthy mentality which I thought was cool Um, now by the way I should probably mention a side note here these uh, the study authors here um, one of their conclusions was that messages promoting exercise need to de-emphasize weight loss and appearance um, and need to instead focus on trying to build people up in their positive body image and, and more about um, what's good with your body rather than what's wrong with your body. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of a movement actually inside of endurance sports literally right now. I've read a lot of articles over the course of the past month about de-emphasizing weight loss and de-emphasizing those numbers. Um, it almost yeah. gets back to being process oriented versus yeah, being outcome sure. oriented. Yeah, yeah, all of these things very much I think overlap on one another. Okay, let me not, now let me tell you one more quick one here. The the fourth thing I would say is to find a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we did a whole podcast on finding a group, um, and on, and we talked a lot on this podcast before about about training partners and, and how training partners can serve as accountability and and just all sorts of other things like that. Um, it circles back up to to one of the things we talked about in the very first one, um, where the German researchers had the the four different things, uh, and they said one of the things that that really helps is perceived social interaction, right? Um, and so I I do think that finding a group or finding your tribe, as it's so time so often called now in business. Um, is is an important thing here. Um, I do think it was interesting. I did find one interesting article that I want to share on this one that I thought was kind of cool. Um, and and basically, my takeaway from this piece of research is that not all groups are good groups. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this also on the 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 group podcast. And so, by all means, encourage you to go back and listen to that one. Um, 
But this piece is this study was called Support or Competition: How Online Social Networks Increase Physical Activity, a randomized controlled trial. Uh, and it was done by research at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it came out in Preventative Medicine Reports in December of 2016. Uh, and what they were doing was trying to pinpoint whether online social dynamics or, or what online social dynamics most effectively motivated people to be more physically active. Um, and so they recruited 790 people from the Pennsylvania University community. Uh, they were average age of about 25. And they enrolled them all in an 11-week exercise program called Pin Shape. Um, and everybody's participation uh, in various activities, be it spin classes or jogging or yoga or weightlifting, was managed and monitored through an interactive website so the researchers built from scratch. Now, one thing I really liked about this one is it wasn't just endurance sports. It was all activities, yeah. right? All physical activities here. Um, and unbeknownst to the people who were are taking part, there were four groups. They were separated into four groups. Individual competition, team competition, team support, and a control group that didn't have any sort of support or competition. And what they were trying to nail down is, okay, are these really supportive groups the ones that are best for you, or is it competitive groups that are really supportive for you? Um, and they found that giving people, and this was the interesting thing, and it was to their surprise, actually, they found that giving people too much support via social media often sabotaged their enthusiasm and determination to be more active. Um, so there was such a thing as too much support. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, they were quoted afterwards as saying, quote, most people think that when it comes to social media, more is better. This study shows that isn't true. When social media is used the wrong way, adding social support to an online health program can backfire and make people less likely to choose healthy behaviors. However, when done right, we found that social media can increase people's fitness dramatically. Um, they found the unquote. They found the competitive groups did better. Um, attendance rates were ninety percent higher in the competitive groups than in the control groups. And then the number of weekly workouts by participants in the team support groups was lower than the control group. Um, and so you're talking about the people in the competitive groups did literally nearly twice as many workouts over the course of that eleven week period, right? Um, and they were talking about the mechanism of what I thought was interesting, but they said basically if one person in a supportive group stopped exercising, it created a domino effect in the form of an unspoken cue to, co to the cohorts that it was okay for others within that social network to stop exercising too, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, in other words, competitive groups where people are holding each other to really high standards um, are, are the most effective, according to this study, uh, social networks. Yeah. Um, and I think so many of us are finding social networks. And even even if they're not necessarily online social networks, they're like Orange Theory, I would consider to be a social network because you're going in there and you're working alongside other people, but you're not really talking to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And all your names are up on the screen. You're trying to get the most splat points and all that sort of thing. And so you're kind of competitive because you don't actually know those people. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just kind of checking in and checking out. You know, flywheel is the same way. Soul cycle is the same way that you end up seeing all of these sort of competitive things. And then they email it to you afterwards and they say, hey, wasn't this great? And I kind of feel like that's the sort of competitiveness that they're, that they're talking about that can be really worthwhile. It's not supposed to be dehumanizing. It needs to be healthy competition, right? Um, but it doesn't need to, be, need to just be, hey, that's okay that you missed a workout. Um, yeah, because uh, that normalizes deviant behavior, right, right, or subpar behavior decision making, right. right. And you know, I believe uh, John uh, Parker had a great quote in Once a Runner, where he said, "One of the keys to being a great runner is to convince yourself that if you miss a workout, the world will come to an end." <laughs> I, I am paraphrasing, but that was kind of, you know, Quentin Cassidy kind of talked about how, or John Parker via Quentin Cassidy talked about how he almost had convinced himself through years of running that he has to get a workout in no matter what. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of my favorite quotations from, from Emil Zadopek is that if you do this, and it's something to the effect of, if you do the training over the many months and many years, um, motivation is no longer an issue. Yeah. Um, uh, it's raining, that doesn't matter. It's simply that I must. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's that been translated in different ways, but it's simply that I must. I think it kind of speaks to that. It speaks to everything we're talking about. Of mm -hmm. course it does. It's Emil Zadopek. Yeah. Um, but it's... it's um, it, this this idea that you kind of keep on doing it, you keep on doing it, you kind of synergistic, and th then eventually it, it, your motivation kind of takes on a life of its own. Right, and becomes yeah. habit and routine, and it almost yeah. doesn't require your you to draw yeah. on your mental reserves to get yeah. in that run because yeah. you know you've run in the rain in the past. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like it's this new sensation anymore. Right. Now, don't get it twisted on us. I mean, you're talking about like the world ending and everything. Okay, 
remember the other thing we've already talked about. <laughs> you know, continue to focus on your process goals. Continue to focus on positive body image. You know, continue to to, to focus on the things that you enjoy um, and the things that that um, are giving you some sort of novelty experience um, and perceived physical exertion by all means. Um, but uh, but but yeah, I, I do think that, that that's an interesting and fun quotation. There. And to kind of draw. The last two studies you talked about, both the online study, the, the, the study about online networks versus the kind of study about body image, it seems like the key is to focus on potential mm-hmm. and how to reach that potential, right? Because you don't want to focus on like poor body image because that's almost just breaking somebody down in the current state. Mm-hmm. You also don't want to be too soft and say, right. you're fine the way you are, yada, yada, because mm-hmm. once again, that's not really creating you know, a, a chase of some speed, a, right. so to speak. You're not creating right. um, this idea of, you know, I'm going to achieve something. And, it, and it's not, and, and continuing back to, to earlier things, it's not departing from the norm. Right. Right? I mean, the, the, the whole idea of, of the perceived exertion and and the, the novelty of activity is it's supposed to be departing from the norm. Right. And so, so so kind of with your chase metaphor, it's it's that there has to be some sort of intervention. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I found that word in a lot of the studies I was looking at around motivation. It's like intervention. There has to be something, a departure from, from what's currently going on. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, well, all right, everybody. That's that's a whole boatload of stuff there about motivation. And so hopefully over the course of the past hour here, there was something in there that might have been worthwhile for you. But reach out to us on our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Patrick, always good having you. Always a pleasure. Congrats again on yesterday. Good luck in your continued preparation for the Boston Marathon. Appreciate it. And best of luck uh, with your prep for uh, the gamut of races you have coming up. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thank you.